Good morning. My name's Dr. Andy Matheson, and I'm here with the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast. Today, we're going to run through a couple of papers and uh, cover an interesting developing area in general nutrition and think how that might impact um, our more athletic patients. So, the first paper we've got up is on FODMAPs. It's called Highly Fermentable Oligosaccharides, Disaccharides, Monosaccharides, Polyols, Consumption Amongst Endurance Athletes in Relationship to Gastrointestinal Symptoms. And it's published in the Frontiers in Nutrition Journal. And I've chosen this, and this caught my eye, because this asks the question that's a bit of an elephant in the room in, in kind of GI stuff when you're working with athletes, which is we keep telling them, especially if they're doing high intensity work, um, and uh, depending on the sort of lactate threshold regime or polarized regime, we, we keep telling people you've got to get enough carbohydrates in to fuel the high intensity work, especially if you do something which is um, skill specific and actually you want to sort of train the correct skills rather than focus more on, on developing all those nice mitochondria and doing kind of fasted work. So we keep saying to athletes, you need more carbohydrates. The problem is we know that most carbohydrates that we recommend will probably trigger people's IBS and GI symptoms. And we sit there with the GI symptoms and say, well, there's lots of other reasons it could be. Um, could be a bit of endotoxemia from um, whatever goes on, weirdness goes on in the bowel when you train hard. Um, could be mechanical effects. Could be this sort of inflammatory response that we, we try and induce to induce change in the athlete. Um, but obviously, we'll, we'll induce changes elsewhere. Um, and this study is done by the group at Monash who produce a lot of work on GI symptoms and athletes um, and uh, certainly listened to podcasts from uh, uh, Dr. Costa previously and uh, very interesting work. So it's it's an interesting study trying to quantify how much of the stuff we tell athletes to have is actually going to be triggering IBS-type symptoms. Um, so just putting a number really on what we kind of all know, which is there's this kind of dissonance between what, we, what we're advising telling athletes, well, try and sort out your GI symptoms, don't miss training sessions because of that, but also, here, have a gel, have two, have three. So it has 430 athletes using kind of questionnaire studies just to try and sort of find out what people were taking in and what maps might be in there. Um, and it gives a little nice summary of the problem in it. Um, I mean, in, in short, what it shows is that, yes, not too surprisingly, most of the supplements, most of the gels, most carbohydrates contain FODMAPs. Um, they mentioned there's one that doesn't. Um, and I thought that was going to be the point where I realized they were funded by that one supplement, but they didn't mention it that I could find and give it a name. But uh, it'd be, be interesting to know what, what that one supplement was. I'll, I'll keep digging on that one. So... What's the answer and, and how will this change practice? Um, I think just an opportunity to be a bit more honest with athletes with GI symptoms. 
we're pretty much there already. But if they want to know, is that all supplements? We can say with a fair degree of certainty, yes. Um, and as with all these FODMAP IBS things, we can try and say to them, look, you can approach it from a few different angles, but there's a reasonable chance we won't get an answer and you just got to tolerate these things. We can try doing lower carbohydrate training and therefore having less FODMAP foods in. We can try things like probiotics, multi your microbiome, microbiota, depending on how um, picky I'm feeling, uh, to see whether or not uh, you might not be producing so many of the byproducts with a, with an alteration there, or fermentable foods, even better, etc. Um, but uh, it's going to be tricky, and so there's just that honest chat when we're saying, look, uh, there is no real easy answer to this, and we've just got to see what works for you. So, uh, good article, and will change my practice in that I'll feel more confident, I think, talking about this is this is a problem with all supplements, whatever whatever they claim. So the next study, we're going to gently dip a toe into uh, an area that everyone has very strong views on, uh, and that's meat consumption. Now, why? I suppose is the question. Uh, this is a sports nutrition podcast, and this is probably more a general medical nutrition article uh, and it's by Papier et al, uh, all based at Oxford. Uh, it's meat consumption, a risk of 25 common conditions, outcome-wide analysis and uh, 475,000 men in the UK Biobank study. Um, so the UK Biobank study is, I'm sure many of you all know, this huge kind of welcome trust in cancer research um, under kind of cohorts of middle-aged adults. Uh, and the guys at Oxford have managed to use the food questionnaires that the people in this cohort, a uh, group that they're looking at, um, were given in 2006. And from it, try and tease out some data on, actually, if you eat meat, were you more likely to get these problems or those problems? So uh, an interesting idea, I think anyone that reads lots of papers just from that introduction will have little alarm bells going of uh, that old phrase that there's liars, damn liars, and statisticians. Uh, in this, unfortunately, does just fall into that category of it's really hard to do this kind of study because clever statisticians can get whatever answer they really want. Um, so a really interesting idea, a good effort, my takeaway from it will probably be that, yes, it's another thing to say that processed meat's not good for you. Um, I always find that a difficult chat with patients because, in general, probably more common in non-athletes than athletes, but in athletes that have jobs, it's, if you're eating processed food and processed meat, it tends not to be because you're not aware it's really bad for you. Um, it tends to be you're working a busy job, you're training either side of that, and there's just not enough hours in the day. Um, or you can't afford nice, expensive meat. Um, and if you've got the choice between working a bit of overtime or spending a while shopping and cooking, unfortunately, you're in a position where you've just got to work some overtime. Uh, so I 
try I try very hard with my patients not to be um too finger pointy with it because uh food is a very social thing. Um and the issue with a lot of nutrition science and especially medical nutrition science is it tries to find measurables outside the context of um our lives. Uh, and that's not really possible because how we eat depends on where we work, who we are, where we live, etc., etc., etc. So worth a read. Um, I'm not sh- sure. I think I think Zoe Harkham, who is fantastic, has done um, some breakdown of the stats on here for people that are interested. But essentially, um, lots of the when you do um, these plots that you'll you'll see in articles like this it's all about whether or not these little drawings the line crosses the center or not um and there's not if it it crosses the center you probably shouldn't take anything from it you probably should shrug your shoulders so the initial problems with this okay it's questionnaires questionnaires a good few years ago um how reliable will they be and then you look at the plots and there's not many things that are definitely not crossing the line. Um, So in conclusion, it's probably not going to change much I do or much for my patients. Um, Whatever your views on uh, meat consumption, um, non-processed meat consumption, I don't think this is going to change them. It's such a difficult area because everyone feels very strongly. And those are the two papers that we're going to cover today. Um, the next one we're going to go on to is just covering a really interesting area of nutrition um, that's been developing over the last few years. I have to say, when I, when I first heard about Professor Taylor's work and the direct study, the first thing I thought about was that John Le Carre book, um, The Constant Gardener. I was like, Hmm, you're taking on the entire diabetes pharmaceutical industry. Um, so if you've read the book, it's uh, all about big pharma and, uh, and how low it will stoop. And uh, it's a brave person that turns around to uh, a very, very profitable area of pharma and uh, points out that they've got it all wrong and you can treat every one of their patients for free. And then has the drive and passion and ability to get a team that can then demonstrate it in a trial. Um, I think in 20 years' time, when medical students are all sitting down to learn about the trials that change how we think, like I did in medical school, um, this is certainly going to be on the curriculum. So. What is this? So this is about type 2 diabetes. Um, So for me, very relevant because and very relevant within, more relevant than I think we realise within sports because we make our athletes have very high carbohydrate diets for many years. It's very unusual to find someone that's been such an out-of-the-box thinker that for the last 20 years they've already been doing fasting or low-carb. Most people, and certainly me when I was doing sports at a decent level. You were drinking Lucozade shakes, Lucozade powders, um, and it was all about pasta, pasta, pasta. Um, So 
my patient population has, certainly amongst the rows, very high carbohydrate exposure over a number of years. Or flip that, just very high calorie exposure over a number of years because of the type of training that we were getting them to do and the way we felt it was best to fuel it. Now, we're not now saying that that wasn't the best way to fuel it. What we're saying, or oh, the best way to get a quick boat or a quick cyclist. What we're saying is it might not be the healthiest way to do it. And anyone who's been an athlete at the top end knows that being an elite athlete isn't a healthy business. So... Roy Taylor's group and other people of back 10, 15 years ago started to question our understanding of what causes diabetes and essentially clarified the mechanisms. They realized it's not, as we always used to be like, oh, the body just seems to stop responding to insulin and the pancreas seems to stop producing as much. Those are elements of it, but actually the underlying thing is this fatty accumulation around the liver and the pancreas. And they then moved on, and it was called the twin cycle hypothesis. And then they moved on and started to think, well, what happens if we drastically lose weight? Oh, sorry, uh, apologies for that. Uh, I thought that was a uh, knock at the door and a shouting baby. Um, it wasn't, so we're good to go. So we were just saying that this idea idea of losing weight and getting rid of the fat around the organs might help people with diabetes through getting rid of this liver and pancreatic fat. And they did the direct study. Um, it was on the back of a something called the counterpoint study, which um, had achieved remarkable weight loss and, and lots of impact on di diabetes came out after that. And then they, the direct study, which was a a low calorie, so really dropped the calories right down. And they managed to get about 36% of their patients off all medications and with normal blood sugars for the two years following that. And this was a pretty varied patient group with people on lots of medications, poorly controlled diabetes. If you want to read more about it, I really, really recommend um, the article on it, the analysis that they've done, Roy Taylor's, uh, Professor Taylor's written in the BMJ, and it's in the August edition of the BMJ. Um, always a bit hit and miss the BMJ, but it is a wonderful summary from Professor Taylor. And also has a lot about the questions that everyone tends to ask when they find about the direct. What about low carb? What about fasting? How do people tolerate these low calories? Because the, the question from, from our point of view is always going to be, well, that's great, but again, this social, cultural context, my guys need to train. They're ambitious. Can this be done and still do training? And the answer is looking like it's probably yes. It just requires a cleverer training regime. But that's also fitting in with the sorts of training regimes that a lot of people are moving over towards. Um, polarized training and, and uh, 
on that is it's pretty much now run of the mill for most people if they've got the time to to achieve it. So there's no reason why we can't have lower calorie input and intermittent fasting strategies to try and drop the calorie down to treat our elite athletes who have diabetes. I suppose the question that we're all wanting the answer to is going to be, well, from this, diabetes almost seems like it's a high, a disease of excess calories. One, is it a disease that you'll get even if you've been burning off those calories, for want of a better phrase? So is that why we see diabetes in athletes um, as they age? Is it because it doesn't matter that you're burning it off, the fact that you've got all these calories going through does lead to higher depositions of um, batter and the liver and pancreas. Well, that's us done for today. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I have not yet managed to get around to setting up uh, the social media page with all the article references on it, but it is on my to-do list, along with painting the walls of my house and learning how to do skimming on the walls of my house. Uh, it'll probably be slightly lower than those, so apologies for that. Um, have a great day. Hope you managed to get some good food in, some good exercise, and a bit of sunshine.